promises made, promises kept. I told you that Dick Morris would be in the studio, and look, here he is. Dick, welcome. Thank you. Honestly, uh, I'm thrilled to see you in person just because it's been a while, not just with COVID. You've had health issues. Your yeah. wife, Eileen, has had serious health issues. So it's been a while, and it's good to well, see I you. Had tongue cancer. Yeah. Which, for a pundit, is near death. <laughs> and uh, But I recovered and had radiation. And I, I decided when I was sick that getting Trump reelected was going to be my mission. Uh, now... That's interesting because, um, I mean, I've heard you talk about this. You talked about it a little bit on the air with us, I don't know, a week or so ago. But I'm convinced and you're convinced that there is no one but Donald Trump who will be the GOP nominee and no one but Trump who can win. He must win. Yeah. But you have a much closer view of things. So yeah. what is your view of the thing? Well, two levels here, Eric. First, uh, that Trump should win. Uh, he's the only candidate who has an incredibly valuable thing, which is tactically when you're in a d campaign and you represent the challenger against the incumbent. It all goes easy in the first round when you say this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's the other, especially the plethora of targets we have with Joe Biden. But then the other side comes back and you says, how do you think you can do any better? I mean, I know there's inflation, but how can you stop it? I know there are high gas prices, but what are you going to do about it? I know the border's open, but in this era, borders can't, are porous. And the Democrats use pessimism as a disguise for their failure. They say, we couldn't, nobody could do any better. Right. And what Trump can say is four words that nobody else can say. I did it already. And uh, borders, I did it already. Uh, prosperity without inflation, I did it already. Keep down gas prices, hey, I did that too. And that's a, a huge advantage. I think um, one of the things that many you know, pro-Trump people are thinking is that <clears throat> when Trump was in the first time, he was as brilliant as he is. He was unaware of the depth of the horror that he was facing. In other words, the people that had it out for him from before he was elected and who really had no scruples about doing anything they could to stop him, to undermine him at every turn. What would he do in a second term? I think I read yesterday someplace that, that you know, he had a plan to do what everybody, yeah. I think, would say, drain the swamp, fire every well, single bureaucrat who is not willing to work with you. Yeah, well, uh, there's a proposal he made, which he ventured last yesterday. Okay. In his, he had a two-hour speech. Okay. Unless you watch Newsmax, you wouldn't have seen it. See, uh, Fox did not cover it, part of their ongoing move to the left. But he proposed, he did something when he was president with the VA, the veterans, and he said in the VA, he said that civil service rules will not apply if the administrator of the VA wants to get rid of someone because they're wrong or incompetent or not doing a good job. No proof, no court case, no nothing, just at pleasure, he can do it. Right. And Trump wants to put that in for the entire executive branch. Now, uh, could he? I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing where we're... legislation. But uh, 
But Bill he Clinton he said it best. It. He said, "I have two thousand people. I have thousands of people working under me, but nobody listens to me. It's like running a cemetery." <laughs> and, that, that's the famous line. It's like yeah. running a cemetery, right? And, thousands of people working under me, but nobody listens right. to me. That strikes me as. Leviathan. This is no longer the America of the founders yeah. where the where the government is responsive to the will of the people. Well, it's important to put it in its global context. Japan and Europe are run by bureaucracies, not by elected officials. I ran the campaign for the guy who got elected prime minister of Japan, a guy named Khan. And you know what he told me? He said, I'm allowed two staff members. He's the prime minister. A typist and somebody else. But Dick, I don't ever it. want to put in a global Everything context. Is that's, isn't the, the, isn't the whole service. point that th- that's the whole point is that Barack Obama and Joe Biden want to put it in a global context and compare us to these other socialistic well, uh, modern states. Why do why would we ever want to compare ourselves well, to these places that I'm are I'm saying it is a negative. Comparison. Yes, right. That's where we don't want to go. Right. The the uh, the, the civil service in Europe and, and Japan and in the U.S. to a certain extent, and that's what we have to guard against, are the new aristocracy, right. just like the nobility. Right. And in fact, they're the same people. They uh, just go to fancy schools right. that only the elites can get into. And uh, they are the true swamp. They are the people that oppose you in government, stop you from doing stuff. They're the perfect embodiment of Newton's law that a body in motion remains in motion in the same direction at the same speed unless acted on by an outside force. But the other question you asked is, can Donald Trump win? Uh, And is he a better prospect than the other candidates? And the first point I want to make is he is going to win. He is going to be the candidate. And if we are opposing him, if we split our ranks and people say, oh, I prefer DeSantis, I like Trump, but I'm, I, I'm worried about his personality. You're playing into the game plan of the Democrats. Of course. Their goal is to do to him what, what Ted Kennedy did to Jimmy Carter. Primaried him in 1980, split the party, and Reagan won. Now, in the first four primary states, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, uh, Iowa, and South Carolina— Trump, now I've just seen the polling, some of it confidential. Trump has a double-digit lead in every state and nationally has a 40-point lead over DeSantis. Oh, we're talking primary, so we're talking about, okay. So when you talk about running somebody against Trump, you're not going to beat him. You're just going to weaken him. You're just going to split the party. Yeah. And uh, the Democrats showed this strategy this year when they intervened in Republican Senate primaries and governor primaries. There are five states where the Democrats, I'm sorry, spent $44 million trying to structure who the Republican candidate would be. Right. And they went to the guy they thought was the weaker of the right. candidates. Right. And uh, so we have to guard against that this time. Well, I really am convinced that most Americans uh, see in Trump a, a hero, a hero for, for what they care about. Um, and when you look around, uh, whether it's at Pence or, or anybody virtually but DeSantis, you see people who manifestly don't get it. Yeah. And, and that's what I find almost funny is that there are some people that have political instincts. Obviously, your former client, uh, Bill Clinton, had great political instincts. To some extent, Barack Obama did. Uh, it's amazing when somebody like a Pence or, or, or like these other people, 
they don't really have good political instincts and they would be deluded into thinking that they could sell the American public their, I don't know, mostly benign version of things. Most people know things are not benign. We're in a horrible war well, with, you know. The things about Trump that make him successful are the things that people hate about him. Uh, he, he, uh, he enforces party discipline by terror. Yeah. Terror. Yeah. There were two Republican senators that didn't toe the line, Corker of Tennessee and Flake of Arizona. He drove them out of politics. He made them anathema. They retired. They hung up. They didn't run again. Uh, and when so that everybody learned you don't cross Donald Trump. Kim Jong-un learned that when he said, I have a button to blow you up. And Trump said, man, I have a bigger button than you do. And he never, never said anything for three years. Yeah. Uh, Trump is a very formidable force that is not about to be stopped. And that personality, that incredible, I called it a bull in a china shop, no pun. (laughs) And he literally, that's what you need in Washington. Uh, A nice guy can't win. Leo DeRocha, nice guys finish last. Well, I mean, especially now. This is not 2000. This is not 1984. We're living in a season where the Marxist madness is on full view. If that weren't the case, if we were dealing with a a kinder, gentler party, if we're dealing with Tip O'Neill, it's a different story. We are, we're emphatically not dealing with those kinds of centrist, mostly pro-American Democrats. We are dealing with, with mad men and mad women. And unless you know that, and respond accordingly, you're effectively useless, which is what most of the non-MAGA uh, rhino GOP has become. Right. It's important to remember that Trump didn't just win the nomination in 16. He orchestrated a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And he had, he had from the conservative wing, Cruz, from the establishment, Jeb Bush, uh, from the wealthy uh, Kasich. He had, he had moderates. He had Kasich. He had each wing of the party against him. And he was just the only guy for himself. And he won. And uh, he created a new party. Yeah. And that's the party that basically will govern. Well, he created a party that reminds me uh, of William F. Buckley's famous statement, I'd rather be governed by um, the first, uh, you know, 300 names in the Boston phone book than by the faculty of Harvard College. In other words, (laughs) the people who are not messed up by living in an ideological bubble, who have to deal with normal things, those are the people that need to be running America. We need to represent those people or figure out what those people think. We'll be right back talking to Dick Morris. The new book, brand new. It's called The Return. Folks, I'm sitting here with the great Dick Morris in the studio. The brand new book is called The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback. I get asked this all the time, and I know you get asked much more often, uh, get asked it more often than I do. But, you know, who who do you think? You think Trump's going to come back? And I'm amazed that people don't understand, of course, he's going to come back. I mean, first of all, let's deal with this. It seems clear to me that the election of 2020 was stolen. Even the idea of that smoke comes out of my ears because I think, what else is there to talk about? When something that 
despicable could happen in a great nation like this. That's the headline. And when you're told, don't talk about that, let's move on, I know you're guilty. And so I don't ever really want to let that go because I think that it is um, contempt for we the people, which is to say contempt for America. It's worse than don't talk about it. It's criminalizing talking about it. Trump is about, they're trying to bar Trump from ever running again because he said the election was stolen. And that's an insurrection and that violates the 14th Amendment to try to keep Robert E. Lee out of office and Jeff Davis. Yeah. Um, and and people who uh, like Rudy Giuliani, who uh, prosecuted the fraud and investigated, are now accused of meddling in the election. But um, I mentioned to you in, on the radio show, I think. Uh, shall I go into that now? The Moore versus Harper case. The the I believe a- anything you want to talk about. I believe Here we voter are. fraud is a thing of the past. I do not think any fraud will happen in the twenty twenty four election. Why? Because there is a brand new court decision coming out, brand new case called Moore versus Harper. That's destined to be one of the all time important cases. When now today is the 27th of July, they can hear it in the fall term. Okay, they'll decide it in the first three months or so of 23. But you're absolutely convinced that where that's going. Well, they wouldn't have accepted cert on it if there there were four judges supporting it, which means the conservatives are for it. So they'll probably get five votes, maybe six. Okay. what it says is that the Constitution provides that the times, manner, and places of choosing, of holding an election for House and Senate, and therefore for president, are going to be determined by the state legislatures. Now, the, the liberal judges over 200 years have said, well, that means the states. And they're saying, no, it doesn't. It means the state legislatures. And they point to the history of the fear of usurpation of executive authority by governors and that the which, state. Which is exactly what happened in 2020. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so. So, so they vested in the state legislatures. And what that <laughs> means is that all of these <laughs> states, all of the swing states, uh, five of them, have passed wonderful laws to stop voter fraud. Uh, no uh, the photo ID required, no drop boxes, no no excuse voting, and all that, but the governors have vetoed it. This disempowers the governors. They, this legisl- this uh, Now, this ruling, will be before the, the 2020 election. election. This ruling says that state legislatures means that neither the governor, nor the attorney general, nor the state courts, nor the Secretary of State have any role at all in regulating elections. It's entirely okay. the state legislature. And, and what is the court that's going to determine this? Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so why has the Supreme Court, why were they, it strikes me, maybe I'm wrong, I'd love to be wrong, uh, why were they cowards uh, in not being willing to look at the Texas case? Well, I... I write about that in my book. The book is called The Return. It's right here by Dick Morris. What do you say? Because I have to tell you, that was a grave disappointment for most Americans. Look, they were, first, they had just approved Amy Coney Barrett a few weeks before. Uh, They were badly burned in Bush v. Gore, where they made a partisan decision on party lines to put Bush in the White House, seven to two. And, uh, And they... And they did not want to go into the middle of this fight in 2020. They were cowards. Even though it was their duty? It was their duty, but they were cowards. And the Democrats were threatening to pack the court. And they felt the institution had to be preserved. Now, when you say they, don't you mean John Roberts? Yeah, I do. 
but well, he had he had five judges with him. But yeah, but but he had he he has but, power of. But th- they since knew new to they them. knew this case was coming up, more v. Harper, and I think they decided that they would punt then, but that they would change the rules when this case came up, out of the out of the melee of the election itself. And I don't like that decision, but I understand it now. I didn't before. I was harshly critical. But they really said, let's solve this problem in the light of day when the passions are lower and let's really change it fundamentally. But see, I, I again, I'm, I'm always happy to be wrong and to be shown ignorant. And I mean that sincerely because I don't know the law at all. And you're a, a, a lawyer and an expert I'm, at this I'm not, stuff. I'm just a meddler. Well, whatever. You're, you've lived in the world. Yeah. Uh, your father w- was uh, in the legal field. I mean, you know this world. But my question is why it strikes me as wrong, fundamentally wrong that Roberts uh, et al. would consider things like the temperature of the country or whether there will be riots. I would argue it is none of your business. It's like saying I can't call this a strike because there are people in the crowd that are drunk and they're going to come onto the field. You're an umpire. You have one job only. How dare you worry about whether doing the right thing will have an effect? That is completely out of bounds. I agree with you completely. Um, The... uh there's something else I'd like to chat about. Um, last night, Trump spoke for two hours, yeah. uh, which is longer than usual. And I outlined, it was really a State of the Union speech. It wasn't about personal stuff or anything. It was outlining what he'd do in the second Okay, term. we're, we're going to go to a break. When we come back, we will deal with that. I'm thrilled to have Dick Morris in the studio. The new book, brand new, The Return, Trump's Big 2024 comes Just yesterday morning. They let me know you were gone Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you Loving you is the right Talking to Dick Morris, uh, author most recently of The Return, Trump's big 2024 comeback. You were just, Dick, uh, talking about Yesterday, so today's the 27th, yesterday on the 26th, Trump gave a big, long speech. You said it was kind of like a State of the Union. He just went all the way across all the issues, talking about what he sees and what he would do. What he would do in another term, second term. And one of the things he highlighted is something that I've been urging. And in the book, I write that this may be the centerpiece of his anti-crime agenda, which is to bring back stop and frisk. Oh, nationally. But how, now, how can he do that? In other words, I thought this was a city by city kind of yeah, decision. Yeah, but there's every way to do that. You can condition federal funding on having stop and frisk, like the Law Enforcement Assistance Act, LEAA. You can say, if you don't do stop and frisk, you're not going to get that money, and you can basically force it. Right. The point about stop and frisk, first of all, just what it is, is that Giuliani and then Bloomberg had it. And uh, it's lowered the murder rate from twenty, from two thousand to four hundred and eighty, and uh, then was thrown out by the courts. And what it was was, if you see a guy walking suspiciously at four in the morning or two in the morning in a high crime neighborhood, and he appears to have some bulge in his pocket, you can pat him down. And if it isn't a gun, he's fine. You just let him go. But if it is a gun and it's loaded and it's not registered. 
you can arrest him and he gets three-year minimum sentence. The court threw it out because they said looking at someone on the street is not probable cause. But Trump's concept is we now have technology where you can remotely scan somebody with a metal scanner, like what they do in airports. And if it goes off, you don't know it's a gun, but you know they have metal in their pockets. And it's midnight, four in the morning, they're at a high-crime neighborhood. That's probable cause to pat them down. And I call it gun control for criminals. Uh, (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice if we could have some gun control for criminals? That would be a great idea. That's right. Yeah. So that's – and then the other thing that was in his speech that was so important is the proposal for extra police officers funded by the feds. Uh, One of the big things Bill Clinton did that really brought brought down crime was he added 100,000 cops to our nation's uh, force. And uh, that was a big part of his program, if you remember. And uh, he expanded the number of cops in the U.S. from about 500,000 to 600,000. And that enabled community-based policing and all kinds of stuff that really brought the crime rate crashing. So he's doing those two programs that are wonderful. And he really outlined them very specifically in the speech. And I was thrilled. I say in the return, my book, that the three issues that will dominate the election are inflation, crime, and immigration. And he really outlined very important programs on this stuff. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, anybody who uh, observed him in his first term saw that he's a man of profound common sense. He sees things, he figures out a way to deal with it, and he is not hamstrung by uh, political opinion. He really does care about solving the problem. And anybody uh, paying any attention understands we, we have so many disasters unfolding in America. And when I say disasters, I mean that harm people. The people's lives are being destroyed because of ineffective, obtuse, selfish politicians. And I, I, so I think there's a hunger for somebody to come in and say, how can we fix this? And let's figure out how to fix it. Well, I think that it goes beyond uh, mistakes. Uh, the reason we have high gas prices is because the Democrats want high gas prices. Correct. Because that's how the Europeans live, and yeah. that's how they stop people from driving. Yeah. And they're in small countries like Holland, yeah. uh, where you don't necessarily need to drive. You can bike from one end to the other easily. Yeah. And, uh, the, and this is what they want to do. This is their strategy for dealing with what they consider to be climate change. And... Um, Trump is really putting that aside and really acting on behalf of the people. Let me put it in this context. The Republican Party is a layer cake. The first layer was the uh, free enterprise layer. That's been there since the 20s. Second layer is national security. That's been there since Eisenhower. The third layer is uh, social programs. That's been there since Reagan, abortion and stuff. And the fourth, fifth, fourth layer that Trump added is um, pro-America. And uh, he broke through the economic law that said you don't touch this stuff. You have free trade. You have free flow of labor. And he said, the heck with that. I'm going to do what's in the interests of the American people. And uh, that's why the rhinos and the establishment oppose him. That lies at the heart of the DeSantis campaign and the uh, Pence campaign. 
uh, people who basically are orthodox, conservative, economic types who don't approve of Donald Trump breaking from that orthodoxy to enact populist programs. Well, and also, I mean, he only breaks from that orthodoxy to some extent. I mean, there's a level of wisdom in it. It, it, You know, there was a time... uh, I just read a biography of Wilhelm Rupke, the economist... um, German-Swiss economist. But I mean, when the whole world is going socialist, uh, you can see an argument needs to be made for free trade and for, you know, not worrying so much about borders. We're going to we all get that. But we're now living in a time when globalism is really the bigger threat than nationalism, you know, unless you're a Kool-Aid drinking uh, Democrat. And you, you understand that there is a vital issue in preserving our sovereignty and in making sure that things are okay here first. And I really am amazed at a lot of these uh, fiscal conservatives who almost don't seem to care about America. They care more about free trade than about America. But globalism has one defect. There are no global elections. The uh, power that is abrogated to the bureaucrats comes from regimes that are largely illegitimate. The majority of the people in the world are ruled by dictators or despots, and voters have nothing to say about it. Even when there are democracies, they're limited. The Europeans don't really have the level of democracy that we do. And to be governed by the elites, which is what you're talking about here, that Eisenhower warned about in his farewell address, is not any better than to be governed by aristocrats. We won a war in 1783 because we didn't want to be governed uh, by anyone but ourselves. And we seem to have forgotten that uh, we've been drifting and drifting and drifting uh, back to where we're being governed by elites. We'll be right back talking to Dick Morris. The new book is The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback. Folks, I'm talking to Dick Morris. Uh, he's the author of a new book, The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback, which is going to happen. Okay, so here's a question, which you just asked me to ask you, because it's if, if I were a little smarter, I would have already thought of it's it. Like but thank you for the but, You always fed Larry the questions for the next thing. But, but I mean, in all seriousness, <laughs> I, was, I did want to go there, but I wouldn't, I would, it wouldn't have occurred to me now. Who... Will Trump run against, do you think, in 2024? Hillary Clinton. That's what I thought you were going to say. Now, you've had some experiences with Hillary Clinton, yeah, but have. you survived. Yeah, well, Here I you did. are. She sends me a Christmas card every year, but there's white powder on the envelope, so yeah. I don't open it. Yeah, don't, don't sniff the anthrax. But, um, um, okay. Let me, let me explain what I think is going to happen. I think that Biden will be forced to announce he's not running again after the 2022 debacle. After they lose Congress, they'll come to him and say, we can't follow your leadership again. We won't put you through the indignity of throwing you out under the 25th Amendment, but you got to say you're not running again. And Harris has to do the same thing. And I think that, well, Harris is 10 points behind Biden in every poll. But there are people who think Biden will not, 
he will not survive his term. And I, I don't mean yeah. necessarily physically, but but in any sense that somehow he will have to step down, which would mean Kamala Harris would be president, which would mean I don't know who would be vice president. There's a real scramble up ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Biden chose Harris for the same reason Nixon chose Agnew, That's <laughs> which is an insurance policy that he wouldn't be thrown out because the guy, person in the wings was worse. Yeah. Uh, I think that once they're out. Victor Davis Hanson, by the way, said that on this program yesterday, and I laughed because I thought that had never occurred to me. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Agnew been, and, and Nixon, but. For a while. Well, of course, but yeah. I'm saying it makes great sense, yeah. but, it, but it, it had never occurred to me that that's how people looked at Agnew. Yeah. Um, okay, so. It's like a poison pill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the. Um, I think that when all the Democrats come out of the woodwork and run, the Democratic electorate has moved irretrievably to the left. And I think Bernie Sanders will be the initial front runner. If people say he's too old, I think AOC will get into the race and will be very prominent because the Democratic Party has moved very far to the left. The moderates have left it. This is a historical phenomenon. When the left-wing party loses an election, it moves to the left. It doesn't move to the center. Uh, after Reagan defeated Carter, the Democrats nominated Mondale and Dukakis before they got sane and nominated Clinton. When Callahan beat when Blair when Thatcher beat Callahan in Britain, the next two candidates were Kinnock and Foote, far leftists, before they got sane and nominated Blair. And that's because the moderates leave the party. They say this party's unrecognizable, it's not for me, and the nominations are controlled by the extreme left. And that's what's happening now. And of course so, the left are ideologues. They actually believe that if we only move more left, then we'd really hit it. Right. And that will cause the party leaders to go crazy because the, even they will realize that that's death for them. And they will go to Hillary begging her to get in to stop Bernie Sanders, just like they did in 16. In 16, Hillary's candidacy was impelled by Sanders's candidacy. Sanders was running first. Nobody was challenging him. And then Hillary came out. If you understand Hillary's psychology, you see how that fits. At her, you know, how well I know her. At her core, Hillary is the person who, the girl who's very unpopular in school and knows that she's unpopular and can't bank on popularity. So she uses intellect or connections or something else to get ahead. And I think that, and what she does in politics is she advances in disguise. Don't vote for me, I know you're not, but vote for a woman president. We're, don't vote for me, vote we're, to continue. We're out of time. By the way, folks, don't do policies. any of those things. Uh, we're out of time right now. We'll be back tomorrow to continue the conversation with Dick Morris. The new book is The Return, Trump's big 2024 comeback. Folks, it's Thursday, and I get to continue my conversation with the great Dick Morris. I would never say the great Dick Morris if he were sitting in the room, except, oh, no, I've just said it, and here he is. Dick Morris, you... Um, you have a new book out, The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback. We ended yesterday our conversation with you speculating that Hillary would end up being his opponent. Um, what do you say to the idea, which many have said, that uh, Michelle Obama would be put forward, that she had – there's a, just a film out now, SalemNow.com is carrying the film 
which makes the case that she is a hidebound uh, Chicago Marxist exactly like uh, her husband Barack. Yeah. I think that's probably accurate, but uh, she's also a rich one. And uh, I think that the last time there was an issue of her running, she decided not to do it in 16. And um, I don't think that she's going to change, but she might. If she ran, she'd be the best candidate the Democrats could put up. Uh, but it wouldn't last long because the uh, the issue – Her, I don't think she could go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump on issues. Uh, Trump is a walking encyclopedia of this stuff. Uh, but we'll see. I don't want to speculate. But the more likely scenario is Hillary because, as I was saying before we broke, is that Sanders will jump out to the lead and the Democratic establishment will come to Hillary begging her to stop Sanders, which is just what happened in 16. And, so, and in 20 with, with Biden. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. It happened in 20, in 16. Yeah. And in 20 with Biden. That's true. They went to Biden. But, uh, obviously, they said, yeah. we got to stop this in South Carolina. Sure. Let's stop it. Sure. You're right. But the uh, – and I think that Hillary will run. I think that – and I was explaining that she always advances masked in disguise because she knows people don't like her. So it's not vote for me. It's vote for the first woman. It's vote for the first, for someone to continue Bill's policies. Now it's don't vote for me. It's vote to stop Sanders. And she always insists on wearing a disguise, a cause to her candidacy that's more profound than electing her because she knows nobody wants to do that. Yes, because people are aware of her corruption and cynicism. Well, Not that those are bad things. Who are we to judge? Um, <laughs> I, I think most people um, – well, she she's uh, extraordinarily – unlikable, but there, there are a number of folks out there who are, who are not likable. But you're convinced that she w- would be, if you had to bet today, she's the candidate against yes. Trump. Yes. Yes. Um, there's something really delicious in that. I, I have to say it's gonna, it would ought to be but funny. But the dynamics of the Democratic Party will force it uh, because there's nobody else who can reliably defeat Sanders. And the fact that, he's, that she's already done so uh, but no one crucial. ever talks about Sanders. It's interesting that you bring him up because it makes sense. But, I mean, yeah. he's been lying back in the wings. Washington forgets that he exists. With his mittens. The only time they realize he exists is when he t- is number one in the polling. Right. <laughs> well, um, okay, so I, 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 there, there's so many ways we can go here. But Trump on the issues, um, let's talk about um, the issue of immigration uh, Ann Coulter has been bitterly against him, really, for the last five years, because she claims he did nothing. He did not do what he said he was going to do, which is build the wall. There's some truth to that. I never can understand how much truth there is to that. What's that big thing on the border? <laughs> well, it's not a it's not a monolithic two thousand foot long wall. I mean, he built some of the wall. I think he built all of it. No, he certainly didn't build all of it. Nobody would say he built all of it except you just now. But um, he seems to have wanted to, and the Democrats made it effectively impossible for him to do it. But if there were a wall, we wouldn't have these immigration problems, correct? He stopped immigration during his term. So obviously it worked. Well, no, he did did that. But I'm saying that he he vowed to build a wall. The wall is not... For tourists to visit it, it's to stop illegals from coming in, right. and it did. Right. The the interesting thing about his speech yesterday was what he said about immigration. 
that I think was fascinating, which is that he explained how he achieved the Remain in Mexico policy uh, in the way that he had never explained before. Yeah. He told me about it, but he never said it publicly. He said that, that he knew that he needed to keep them in Mexico because once the immigrants came to the U.S., they got all the constitutional rights of citizens, right. even though they weren't they were here illegally. Right. And the only way to stop that was to keep them in Mexico. Right. So Lopez Obrador is a communist, basically. The head of Mexico. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't about to help Trump. And Trump got him to put 28,000 troops on the border on the Mexican side to apprehend immigrants and solve Trump's problems for him. And the way Trump did that was that he renegotiated NAFTA, free trade, and made it into a very advantageous deal for Mexico and for the U.S. And then he went to Mexico and said, okay, if you do not post these troops on the border, he said, graphically, he said that was a Friday. He said, on Monday morning at 8 a.m., there will be a 25% U.S. tariff on any imports coming from Mexico, which in one stroke would destroy their entire economy. And Lopez Obrador said, we would be honored to put the troops on the border. But, I mean, of course, that's what leaders do. And they're supposed to use our power, whether it's soft power or hard power. But the point is that that's... That's great leadership. It's brilliant thinking and strategizing. But f- free market uh, fetishists would say, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't use tariffs. Not, not That's a bad that. idea. Every company that does business in Mexico that has investments there for products coming to the U.S. would be suddenly broke uh, and they would go crazy. Uh, that position was so controversial. And the only reason that Obrador might not have succumbed to it is he wouldn't have believed Trump had the stones to do that. But he did. He announced it publicly, and he said he was going to do that. And then he did something else that really is important. He didn't mention the speech, but we need to understand it. He required, as part of the new NAFTA, that any car coming into the United States from Mexico must have been, have been made by workers who are paid $15 an hour or more. In other words, for the first time in history, he built good wages into a trade agreement. Usually it's a race to the bottom. But his reasoning was that if we let them pay these people two and three bucks an hour, they'll put American workers out of business. So he made them pay them 15 bucks an hour. So, I mean, that's like the best job in Mexico. Well, it's also a human rights issue. In other words, when we can use our power to help people in other countries. I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a wonderful thing that he was able to but do that. But the left is always rejecting free trade agreements, like with Colombia or with Peru. Uh, because they say, oh, it'll just encourage cutthroat competition, a race to the bottom, and they'll end up paying their people like dirt. Right. And that's true. But Trump used the power of the trade agreement to raise wages to 15 an hour, because he, which is a liberal goal, minimum wage, because he said that if we don't do that for Mexican workers, we won't be able to get high wages for American workers. It was such a brilliant move and such a so counter to the orthodox ideology. It's breathtaking. Well, in order for any of this good stuff to happen uh, in 2024, we have to get through where we are now. Um, I and most Americans have been just deeply sickened at at this phony, wicked uh, January 6th narrative that's being 
put forward to demonize Trump and his supporters in a way we've really never seen in American life. It is just just a monstrous um, uh, abdication of the most fundamental American values, and it's participated in by the entire journalistic establishment, uh, the entire left in politics, and many on the right who have gone along with this narrative, including some people in Trump's uh, who are in Trump's cabinet. Yeah, the the purpose of all of this is to weaken Trump to a point where he gets a primary. That's the overriding objective of the Democratic Party. And anybody who sits out there who says, I like what Trump did, but I don't like his personality, right. wouldn't it be better to have DeSantis? Right. Should understand that they are reelecting the Democrats when they say well, that. Well, exactly. That Excuse me. that's the goal of the January 6th committee. Okay, that's... Uh my goodness. We'll be right back. More with Dick Morris. The book is The Return, Trump's Big 2024. We're talking to Dick Morris who is the author of The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback. You say unequivocally, uh, and you back it up in the book, that Trump will be the candidate 2024. Trump will win in 2024. What are some of the other issues uh, that uh, he needs to run on? We talked about well, immigration. the three big ones are inflation, immigration, and crime. And the program he outlined yesterday in his, in effect, State of the Union speech for his second term. Yeah. Uh, about crime was fantastic. It amounts to something very similar to what the left really did with education, uh, and but it worked out nefariously for that, but crime is, is different, which is basically to federalize the issue. Uh, he basically said that the mayors and the governors of the country are not doing a good job in controlling crime. They won't. And I'm going to step in with the federal government to preempt them to deal with crime. He said, so how is that, speaking as conservatives or somebody with conservative principles, how is that not um, an anti-conservative, anti-states' rights, anti-small government idea? In other words, couldn't this go wrong by subsidizing bad leadership in blue states and blue cities like Chicago and New York and so on? It is exactly what you described, an anti-small government anti-traditional conservative view, just like his uh, insistence on on uh, keeping on stopping free trade with China and stopping free flow of labor with Mexico fits that definition. But he thinks it's in the interest of the American people, and he doesn't give a damn about the ideology, which is why he draws such opposition. Well, the, the, but the only reason I would bring that up is because to me – I don't think we should be hidebound ideologues, and whenever anybody is, I think it's ridiculous. You have to be practical. But I guess the question is, could this practically backfire yeah. by propping up bad leaders like Lori Lightfoot? Well, it's not going to prop them up. It's going to preempt them. Basically, what he's doing is taking crime away from the local mayors and saying you're no longer in charge of your own police department. The way he'd do it, is the is the subterfuge we use to force everybody to use seatbelts. Uh, we couldn't do it as a federal action. So we passed a law saying you can't get transportation money unless you require everyone to wear seatbelts. So it's completely discretionary. And the court upheld it. 
And here we have funding under the LEAA, the Law Enforcement Assistance Act. And we can condition that based on not having no cash bail, having cash bail, based on mandatory minimum sentences, based on stop-and-frisk policies that we've that Trump advocated yesterday, which is basically gun control for criminals. And what Trump was really saying is, I'm going to federalize those issues, and I'm going to make it a federal responsibility to keep our cities safe if the local mayors and governors don't do that. He even said that when they absolutely abdicate, I'll send in the National Guard, whether or not it's requested by the governors. And uh, that's a radical step, but it is the kind of step that is vital to be able to deal with this epidemic of crime that's taking over our country. Now, why do you suppose he didn't do that in 2020? In other words, he could have, but it was almost like... Crime wasn't that bad. Uh, Well, I think it was also a political calculation that he needed to, you know, let the Democrats live with their decisions. Basically, crime was about where it had been for years. We had a, a huge crime rate in the 80s and 90s. Then it came down, frankly, in large part because of the policies of my old boss, Bill Clinton. Uh, mandatory minimum sentences, 100,000 extra cops, uh, controls on purchasing of handguns, you know, with waiting periods. Uh, and, and, and it was very effective. And the crime rate dropped throughout the 90s. Uh, and by 2000, crime wasn't much of a problem. And it hasn't been since then. But then Biden brought it all back. And Trump's completely right that the cities are run by a clique of Democratic mayors and governors whose policies perpetuate crime. And if you're going to stop it, you're going to have to take control. The metaphor I'm using was that the schools used to be terrible throughout the country. They still are. But everybody said it's a state responsibility, not federal. And Clinton came in and said, and Bush came in and said, no, it's federal. And the no child left behind and all that stuff. The solution was charter schools and break the union. But the point was he federalized that responsibility. And now I think we're going to have the same pattern with crime. And I think that will, res- that will result in an entirely new regime in terms of crime and truly solve this problem. Well, um, the, you mentioned education. The, um, the Marxist madness that has infected the whole country and the culture, the trans madness – um, it seems that that's one place where DeSantis has been wonderfully bold and outspoken and a handful of other people have been. I know Trump has been to some extent, too. But is there anything that can be done? I think maybe Betsy DeVos, uh, who was the secretary of education under uh, Trump, has called for the abolition of the um, uh, the Department of Education, which I actually think would be a good thing. And yeah, I think right. that a lot of this federal bureaucracy would just be better going away. What do you suppose? Okay, but that's not high on my list of priorities, nor of Trump's. Uh, The answer to the transport stuff and the parental rights is twofold. First of all, I think Trump is going to advocate. He hasn't yet, but we've talked about it. A federal requirement that every school board have a majority of parents on it. That's a novel idea. As a condition of federal education aid. That, that's a, and, uh, yeah. and that they be chosen in separate elections in which parents can vote. Secondly, I think the other element that could solve it is you very simply do it with the stroke of a pen. We have a non-discrimination uh, Title Ten, Title Nine, that says girls' sports and boys' sports have to be funded equally in school. 
And Biden has twisted and perverted it in an Orwellian way to make to say that it's discrimination against women to discriminate against women in favor of gays and, and sanction that, allow that. What Trump just needs to do is to reaffirm the original text and say that bringing men into girls' sports is 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 disempowering women and messing up girls' sports. They don't get scholarships. They don't win. And uh, and he could disallow it. He could literally do that with an executive order. Well, it's it's amazing because there's nothing more commonsensical than this. I mean, I, there's almost no one in America who thinks that you know large men should be allowed to compete against it's women in there sports. There should be three competitions: men, women, and trans, and let them have their own medal. Let them have their own races. <laughs> if anybody gives a damn, they can watch it. But uh, don't go into, don't pollute the uh, female sports. Yeah, well, look, again, it seems so basic, and it takes leadership, courage, uh, strength to enact these things. But I think most Americans would applaud if, uh, if a national leader were willing to do this. They applaud when somebody like DeSantis does it in Florida. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think that Trump will be reelected is because people are looking for someone with common sense solutions but who also has the willingness to fight um, I, my beef um, mainly against establishment Republicans is their willingness to, to lie down and let the, the Democrats win. In other words, it's because of uh, George W. Bush and so many others that we are now where we are. We could talk about China. They allowed China to become what it is today. And that was Part of it, of course, was the – on the left, you have the ignorance about evil and communism. On the right, you have this uh, idolization of the free market and how the free market is just going to spawn Ben Franklin's and Tom Jefferson's yeah. all across China, which didn't happen. But it was also happen. on the left a uh, desire to make money. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Greed yeah. is, is at the heart of it. But I'm still, I'm still saying that the, I think that they were – they've always been naive about well, communism and sin. evil was Bill Clinton's in allowing China into the World Trade Organization. China had a negative balance of trade with the United States uh, that's negative to China before they joined the WTO. And then after that, they spawned over a billion-dollar surplus with it. Uh, But in terms of our policy toward China now, I think that Trump was brilliant in understanding the nature of the challenge China poses – which is not primarily military, and it's not primarily economic. It's primarily intellectual, because they run their country with a totalitarian system based on the social acceptance score, social virtue, whatever they call it. And it's like a credit rating. Everybody has one. And every time they make a transaction, it's recorded. And in this case, the transaction is you go to a website that's a Western website or you sign a petition or you don't do something you're supposed to do. And everybody in China has a social acceptance score. And if it's too low, they can't even board planes or trains. Dick, this is called tyranny and slavery. There yep. is no other word for it. These, these are – this is as wicked – uh, as inhuman as it gets, and we have enabled that in a nation of 1.3 billion, how much is it? 1.4, but we have also allowed them to export it. Okay, because I, we're going to go to a break. When we come back, we need to talk about this. It doesn't get more important than that. We'll be right back talking to Dick Moore's author of The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback. Shining through the window. 
know, let me know everything's alright. Summer breeze makes me feel fine. Folks, we're talking to Dick Morris. It's the Eric Taxis show. We just uh ended on the question or on the issue of how um, China uh, is exporting the utterly wicked uh, Marxist inhuman ideas uh, of, of communism, of the way they do business. There's a tyranny, totalitarian tyranny. They've been successful in exporting that around the world and uh, feckless, gutless Americans, uh, many on the right, have allowed them to do this. Yeah, we were talking about the social acceptance score that with which China rules its own people, um, saying that you need to have a certain score to be able to get a job or get housing or even to board a train or a plane. And that's based on your willingness to kowtow to the government. But they are pushing Huawei, uh, which is the leading, leading one of the leading companies in China. And uh, it supplies 5G networks to the rest of the world. And it embeds in that 5G network the capability to develop a social acceptance score in every country with every person. And the idea is that Eric Metaxas and Dick Morris, who are not in China, will have a score too low for zero, Elton John once said, <laughs> but but we'll have a score. And the way will the way they'll enforce that is China now is a major shareholder in twenty four hundred major U.S. companies. I explain this in my book, and the and they can go to those companies and say, "Hey, I don't want Dick Morris having a TV show, and I own twelve percent of your company, or I don't want Eric Metaxas to have a, a TV show." Uh, I don't want Joe Blow to have a job, and or I want somebody else promoted. And they can intervene in the corporate decisions of the companies that they control economically. And by the way, I, I just do not want to belabor the point, but it's been out there a lot. But the economic, the fact that China has its employee as president of the United States is unbelievable. Uh, not just Hunter Biden, not just all of that. But Blinken, the Secretary of State, earned his living for four years as the executive director of the Biden Institute in Penn University of Pennsylvania that got it, most of its funding from an anonymous source, which everybody believes to be China. And this, this is the level of corruption. It's, it's out of and, some end times film. Biden I mean. made over a million dollars personally from that. But, but they play, you know, Clinton had the Clinton Foundation where his staff hung out when he was out of power. Biden had the Biden Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. And that is funded by China secretly. The University of Pennsylvania has refused to release the donors. And the head of the University of Pennsylvania just accepted an ambassadorship uh, from Biden. Uh, and it is, it is as corrupt as it can possibly get. Okay, so Trump understands oh, I'm sorry, this. I forgot the other thing. Trump put the head, the founder of Huawei and one of the leaders in jail. He had her arrested in Canada because she violated our sanctions with Iran. And he had her picked up and locked up, and Biden let her go. Are we surprised? No. 
Um, so we just got a few minutes left. What would Trump do? Th- this is really this is satanic. China's um, tyranny, totalitarian, inhuman, cruel, uh, utterly atheistic, uh, certainly anti-Christian, uh, inhuman policies um, are being perpetrated around the world because of gutless people like Joe Biden. What will a President Trump do about Well, the first this? thing he'll do is what he said in his speech last night. He will punish the second greatest crime after the Holocaust that's been committed in recent time, the spread of COVID. And uh, he will punish that by punishing trade with the U.S. and China and debt payments. The United States pays China roughly a trillion dollars every, roughly a hundred billion every year in interest payments on its debt and in trade surplus <laughs> to China. And we can stop that. Uh, we can literally cut it out. Right, but we need a president with the guts to do that. And I can't think of anybody besides Donald Trump who has the guts to do something yeah, like that. The guts, the stones, and the uh, the impervious sense of my way or the highway. And we have to understand that it is not Trump's assets that do that. It's his defects. The things we don't <laughs> like about Donald Trump. I, I would the not arrogance, really, I would not the self-possession, the, the conceit. The insistence on getting his way, uh, the the bias of his personality against people who offend him, it's those defects that make him a good president. Well, to, to some I've extent, I've so closely with him. I've seen that would, over and over. Yeah, I mean, I would quibble with you because because I think it it, it cuts both ways. Uh, I, I think that uh, none none of us is perfect, and Trump has some big flaws. But it it does, in a sense, I, I, I'm agreeing and disagreeing simultaneously with what you just said. But um, you're really convinced uh, not just that he'll run, but that he'll be back uh, as president. That would be a dream come true for many Americans. Yeah, it would. And, uh, and it'll be, it will be ultimately an incredible salvation for this country. And, you know, they'll get to try to impeach him the third and the fourth time. That's right. Three, Pete. Here we go. So uh, uh, seconds left. Who do you think his vice president would be? Well, I think it's possible of a deal with DeSantis. I think that could happen. Um, other than that, whoever he likes, whoever he doesn't really like that minute, could be one of us. Who knows? <laughs> Keep your fingers crossed. Dick Morris, it's a joy to have you here in the studio. Uh, congratulations on the book, The Return. Uh, we'd love it's to get you back. It's worth writing a book to get an interview with you. Oh, oh, right. <laughs> of course. We'll be, we'll be back uh, with more folks. And, and we'll be back with you, Dick Morris, because I know you're in New York and we want you back. So thank you. Thank you. Times were right, overnight, we were headline news. 